Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Hannah Johnson. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Luke. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I will be reading Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20 from the message version. Okay. There were shepherders camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. Suddenly, God's angels stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. The angels said, Don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has just been born in David's town, a Savior who is Messiah and Master. This is what you're to look for, a baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. At once, the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. And the angel choir withdrew into heaven. Sheep herders talked it over and said, Let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. They left, running, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Seeing was believing. They told everyone they met what the angels had said about the child. All who heard the sheep herders were impressed. Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear, deep within herself. The sheep herders returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they had seen and heard. It turned out exactly the way they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah for reading a scripture that we are very familiar with, and you are asking, Christmas is past. What in the world are we doing here? The story of the shepherds and their call to go to Bethlehem is one that has been expounded on, reminisced, reread, and put back to bed until next year. A special time of preparation is past. Strange text for the Sunday after Easter. Beautiful packages are now gone, and they're weary in their place is a weary-looking Christmas tree, leaking all its needles, unless you have succumbed to buying a plastic one. All the packages, beautiful wrappings have been ashes in the fireplace, and a sort of after-Christmas blues sets in. When I was in college, we always had papers that had to be written during Christmas. And I would bring home all my books. And I would have all those great plans to get that master thesis done. And as I would head back for college at the end of Christmas, I hadn't done a thing. So January and February were miserable. Chicago was cold, it was dark, sloppy snow, exams, and way overdue papers. Not a good time of the year. Norman Habel, one of my unusual poets, writes in one of his poems, God must laugh to himself at Christmas time. Imagine 40 million toys broken in one day. 40 million fathers still assembling 40 million more. And 140 million shoppers 
jamming up the stores that have the spirit of a third world war instead of peace on earth. Just think of it, God. Forty million glasses of milk spilled on the good tablecloth in one day. Forty million mothers with Christmas headache, number six or seven. And just as many fathers with rather heavy hangovers from the Christmas cheer of heaven left on earth. So what has possessed me to spend time with you this morning on Luke chapter 2? It's largely because our moments of encounter with God find their validity in the pedestrian hours of our day and of our week. We sometimes think of God only when the storm is raging or when there's some glorious joy that has come to us. And certainly it says in Isaiah chapter 40 that we will mount up with wings as eagles. We shall run and not be weary. But it also says we will walk and not faint. And most of our lives are spent in pretty boring circumstances. I don't care what kind of a job you have. It's got its miserable days. You can't convince me otherwise. I have been watching a lot of football lately. I haven't been entirely satisfied with the outcomes. But as I watch it, I see these guys performing magnificent feats of athletic ability on the football field. I'm amazed at their body control, at their ability to read a play and to stop it, or to defeat the, def- the defense. And I know that that is able to take place because of the hours, the endless hours of tedium in the weight room and in the training field, all for that glorious Sunday afternoon, all of those other things. How many times do we find ourselves calling upon God when we find ourselves in the middle of some kind of great trauma or dramatic need, but the rest of the time it's pretty standard? If we are to return to the joy of our routine, if there's to be a special quality to our normal lives, then we have to go with the shepherds to Bethlehem and return the same way, but personally different. Now, some of you may think, how can I be enthusiastic about my job? I don't know. Sometimes I wasn't enthusiastic about my job. That doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's true. There's a tedium to the job. There's a tedium to every day. Not every day is written in loud, technicolor colors. How can we find our job to have a ministry? I read of a homemaker who went after Christmas shopping, leaving her husband, who was home on Christmas holiday, in charge of their three children. When she returned a few hours later, she heard the sounds emanating from the house before she got to the front door. They were sounds of unmistakable distress. And when she opened the door, she was met 
by her accountant husband, who handed her a neatly printed piece of paper. It said, dried tears 14 times, tied 16 pairs of shoes, served drinks of water 22 times, purchased balloons, three per child, average life of balloon 12 seconds, <laughs> said don't cross the street 34 times, cross the street 34 times. Number of times I will do this in the future, zero. <laughs> Sometimes it is good for husbands who have the blessing of a stay-at-home mom to do his, her job. The glory is great, but the routine can be rugged. To come home from a joyous week of work where you've accomplished your goals and you've set new goals, and you're excited about those goals, and you come home, and you're met at the door with the need to discipline the children or fix the leaking hot water heater or wonder why the card won't run anymore. The glory is great, but the routine can be rugged. And then I remind myself that Jesus lived a pretty simple life in a pretty routine way. He had simple people around him, born in a simple place. His friends were partners in a fishing village fleet from Capernaum. Some of his best friends were three single young people, Mary, Martha, Martha and Lazarus, in a little dump of a town called Bethany. And when Jesus talked to the people, they heard him gladly because he used language and stories they understood. He did not give them great, detailed, theological syllogisms. He gave them stories about a woman kneading bread, or a sower in the field, or a shepherd with his sheep, or a vineyard. Christ knew the routine. He spent most of his life, most of his adult life, working in a carpenter shop without power tools. He related to the rutted, rugged, everyday, ordinary people. And you think about those shepherds that Hannah read about. Now that's really routine. Sometimes we romanticize the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. Have you ever spent any time with sheep? They're stupid. So to be called a sheep is not really a flattering statement. They are dirty, they have ticks, and if there's a hole in the fence, one will find it and go through and all the rest will follow them right out onto the freeway. They're dumb. And here these shepherds are outside of Bethlehem keeping watch over their flocks by night. I know we romanticize it. We, we make them look clean and cute, holding little lambs. But that's routine. That is really routine. And what's interesting to me is that descendants of the same sheep and the same shepherds are on the same hillside in the same location to this day. 
generation after generation after generation. These are men of very little importance, men of routine. They had no significance to the power structure of the day. They never saw their names in the newspaper, even on the gossip page. They were the ones who were shaken out of the routine of their ordinary world and who responded to it. Why in the world did the announcement come to them? Imagine 40 million angels, frightening, tired, lazy shepherds camping out one night, or 40 dirty shepherds, smelly, hairy, bleary, scared, shivering, sheepy shepherds, poking their heads through the door of a shed to look for a baby in the middle of the night. Why shepherds? Why not the leaders in society? According to the Mishnah, these flocks were kept close to Bethlehem near the road to Jerusalem because they were kept there for temple sacrifices. Maybe that's why the angel came to these shepherds to announce the birth of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Something had been told those shepherds. The method of announcement is not really important, but the content of that announcement is great importance. God came into their routine lives, their dull, boring, sheepy lives, with a tremendous announcement that a Savior had been born. And this night would not fade from their memories. This time of year would never be a time without meaning. They would never return to quite the same death of hope that they had spent their nights before. Night on the plains would not hold the same dull plodding. It would always have the hint of hope, a Savior who is Messiah, Master. That's what they'd been told while they were just doing their dull job. They had heard and they had seen it all for themselves. The truly sad part of the Christmas season for me is to observe so many people and speak with so many of my friends who have never joined the shepherds, who maybe have set up a creche in their home or at their place of business, who know all about the Christmas sales and the post-Christmas sales, but they don't know the wonder of Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, who have never had their routine lives interrupted by good news without just dropping off back to sleep. These shepherds didn't drop off back to sleep. They said, let's check it out. Let's go see for themselves. Friends, there has to be a personal response to the Christmas story. Otherwise, it's just a nice Story, equal to night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. If it's going to have more meaning than that, it's because we allow the story to interrupt our routine, sometimes dull lives, and we check it out. We must see for ourselves. God has no grandchildren. 
John writes in 1 John, from the very first day we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in the most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us, this experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. So the shepherds wisely checked it out. And it says they returned. But they returned changed. They returned to what? The same dumb sheep they had before. The same boring place. The same chilly cave on that Bethlehem hillside. But they were not the same. They worked for the same over-shepherd. But they were not the same. The same. Because the events of that incredible evening had been just like others of their class and type, but now they were different because they had personally experienced. You ever notice that it says of the angel's song, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. But after they had gone to the manger, the shepherds returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen. Now the glory is within them. They did not use their experience of that incredible night as a litmus test to determine the spiritual depth or life of others. They did not say to the other shepherds who had not experienced this, have you ever had the experience of the angel's song? If you haven't had the angel's song experience, you just haven't arrived. Nor did they leave the fields to start a seminary. Nor did they leave their job as shepherds to start a church called the Church of the Angels' Song. God did not tell them, unto you is born this day a Savior, in order to get them to start a new movement, but in order to help them become new men. Before the events of that incredible evening, they were just like the others of their class and type. But they were not the same now. They went back to their old job as a new person. And they saw that job. The job. Don't make it glorious or wonderful. It's a job. But they saw it differently. We are so often attracted, the church is so often attracted to dramatic stories. I can remember as a young fellow when all of our Youth for Christ rallies featured somebody who was an ex-something or other, an ex-gambler, ex-movie star, ex-gangster, ex-something. 
And it was almost like the young fellow that prayed, Lord, I've never killed anybody. I have never sold drugs. I have never raped anybody. But if you can use me with all of those handicaps, (laughs) I'd like to follow you. We are not to be caught up in the search for the dramatic. We are to be caught up in the realization that God invests and invades our everyday routines because He makes us new. Think of it. They returned glorifying and praising God, and all who heard it were amazed. I once read a a French author by the name of Charles Bouquet, and he had one passage that really struck me because I used to watch my dad go to work. He'd get up in the morning in the same sleepy way, he'd eat the same soggy breakfast, he'd get in the same dumb old brown dodge, he'd drive to his place of work, and he'd work all day long with the same kind of stupid, dumb people. Of course, I had the right to be a judge of all that. But I remember thinking, boy, I hope I have a job that's better than that. And then there was a growing awareness in my life that maybe God was calling me to be a minister. And I fought that like crazy because I didn't know any ministers that were not boring as all get out. (laughs) They drove black cars with four doors and black sidewalls back in the days when white sidewalls were the thing. They had stained glass voices when they preached. And they would say things like, Dearly beloved, And I thought, how boring can that be? (laughs) And I have discovered in 50 years of ministry that you'd better have your seatbelt fastened because it ain't boring. You don't know what's going to happen. In the middle of your routine, you can be interrupted with a glorious opportunity for the Lord. These shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. They went back to the same old place, but different men. I read this passage, and it made me think of my father. It's a description of what a Christian approach to routine work needs to be. It's about making chairs. Now, that must be exciting work, huh? Quote, during all my childhood, I saw chairs being caned exactly in the same spirit, with the same heart and hand as those which were this people fashioning its cathedrals. These bygone workmen did not serve, they worked. They had an absolute honor, which is an honor proper. A chart chair rung had to be well made. That was the understood thing. That was the first thing. It wasn't that the chair rung had to be well made for the salary or on account of the salary. It wasn't that it was to be well made for the boss or for connoisseurs or the boss's clients. It had to be well made for itself, in itself, its very self. 
a tradition coming, springing from deep within the race, a history, an absolute, an honor, demanded that this chair rung be well made. Every part of the chair which could not be seen was just as perfectly made as the parts which could be seen. This was the same, self-same principle of cathedrals. There was no question of being seen or of not being seen. It was the innate being of work which needed to be well done. Donna and I walked one afternoon on the roof of the Duomo, the cathedral in Milan, Italy. A cathedral that you have seen pictures of if you've ever looked at travel magazines or been there. Hundreds and hundreds of spires. And up on the roof, you see all of these spires up close. And I was deeply moved as I looked at them because each small spire had three sides with a Gothic arch, and inside that arch was a statue of a saint, a carving of a saint about this big. And the ones up on the roof, visible only to pigeons and God and curious tourists, were as perfectly made as those down by the main entrance to the cathedral. Those artisans did their work to the glory of God, not to the praise of men, not because it was exciting and wonderful, not because everybody said, ah, he's a sculptor, but because it was work done to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God. Confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. I guess what I'm saying, folks, go back to the routine of your lives now that the holidays are pretty well wrapped up. Go back to the same job and the same hard-to-get-along-with or the same demanding or the same wonderful boss or the same recalcitrant employees. But view it differently. If you have been to the manger, if you know the Christ child, you can be in the rugged routine and find it filled with the glory of God. Our world of home and family and work and profession and recreation and friendship, we can be like the shepherds, returning, glorifying, and praising God for everything. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do realize, don't you, that our Lord loves your fellow workers and that boss or those employees or those neighbors on your street or the family in your home. Our Lord loves them so much, so much, that He's placed you there to be His living illustration. Now, Lord... anything I've said has significance or importance to any of us here, 
May your Holy Spirit drive it into our hearts. If not, by the breath of your grace, blow it away. Amen.